Tonight, we pick it up in the middle of Matthew chapter 12. And uh, I do just want to remind you of one thing that we looked at the last time we were together in the first part of Matthew chapter 12. The whole theme that we've been facing basically since we finished the Sermon on the Mount way back at the end of Matthew chapter 7 is this building rejection of Jesus on the part of the religious leaders of the Jews of his day. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, their rejection of Jesus just becomes more intense more and more as we make our way through uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And and we're going to see Jesus react to that rejection, that opposition that he faced uh, right here in this chapter 12. But one thing I just want to notice here, when we, last time we were together, we took a look at the first, I don't know, 24 verses of Matthew chapter 12, and we saw that the chapter began with two Sabbath controversies. And I just want to remind you of something that happened at the end of the second Sabbath controversy. Do you remember that? Um, Here we go. Uh, I'll just pick it up at verse 13. Then he said to the man, he being Jesus, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. So Jesus healed this man of his withered hand, and he did it on the Sabbath day, okay? Now look at verse 14. That's the shocking verse. Then the Pharisees went out and took counsel against him how they might destroy him. Do you see that with that verse, we've reached a new level of opposition against Jesus, right? I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, I don't like that Jesus guy. It's another thing to say, hey, I don't like that Jesus guy, and somebody should do something about him. You know, and there's all different levels of opposition, but when it comes to the place where you say, Let's plan to destroy this. Let's put a plan in action that will destroy this man. That is serious opposition. Well, we continue on now. Um, We're going to pick it up here at verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. And he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now, what I want you to notice here is, first of all, Jesus again does one of these, in the minds of the Jewish people of his day, an impossible miracle to perform. He was a man demon-possessed. And the, the effect of demon possession on this man was to make him blind and mute. Now, the interesting thing about this, we've discussed this before, I'm just reminding you of this, actually, is that... The Jews of that day had extensive formulas for casting demons out of people. And almost always the formulas involved getting the demon to tell you its name. And the idea was if you had the name of the demon, that was like a handle that you could put upon the unclean spirit and pull him out of the man. And unless you knew the demon's name, you couldn't really do anything. Now, I want you to notice They thought that if a demon was successful in making a man or woman mute, then there was nothing you could do to cast him out, right? Because the demon then could never uh, have the name revealed. And so they thought this was an especially difficult or perhaps even impossible kind of demon to cast out. What does Jesus do? He casts the demon out of the man right away. So much so that look at the reaction of the crowd in verse 23. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David. The crowds react here with messianic expectation. This could be, this could really be the Messiah. Now, 
D.A. Carson, and really his wonderful commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, he suggests that the idea here is that the crowds were wondering about this. In other words, this was not a confident statement. We know this man is the son of David, which means the Messiah. Actually, it was more cautious. It was like, whoa, this could really be the guy. I want you to notice. The reason why they were cautious about this was, again, remember that Jesus was different than the kind of Messiah they were expecting. They did not expect a Messiah who would primarily show his power and his might through humble acts of service by healing blind and mute and lame people. They expected a Messiah who would have the power of God, but he would use the power of God to do things like call down fire from heaven upon the Roman legions. He would use his power in a political way, in a military way. They weren't expecting a Messiah who would use his power in such humble, servant-like ways. And here now, their expectations are being transformed, and it's as if Jesus is breaking through to the multitudes. Do you see? The, what, th- this could be it. This really could be the guy. He's not the Messiah we were really expecting, but he could really be the one. There's a transformation going on in the crowds here, and it's pretty exciting to see. Now, that's one reaction to this marvelous deliverance of the man who was demon-possessed with the demon that caused him to be blind and mute. Look at the other reaction from the scribes and the Pharisees in verse 24. It says there, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. I want you to understand, as I have noted for you, we see increasing steps on this path of rejecting and opposing Jesus. They've just taken another step down this path. Now they look at the good and holy and perfect work of Jesus and they say it's of the devil. You have to say that is a radical rejection of Jesus. To look at Jesus, by the way, should we remind ourselves, Jesus, the sinless man. Jesus, the perfect representation of God right in front of them. I mean, if they said they loved God, they should have loved Jesus because Jesus perfectly represented God the Father to them, right? So here are these men. They they see this happen right in front of their eyes and their immediate reaction is, that's the devil. You have to admit, that is a very intensified state of hardness in their heart. To look at the beautiful work of God and say, that's the devil. You're treading on some very dangerous ground here. So, Jesus is going to answer them beginning now at verse 25. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said, maybe I should just stop right there. They didn't even say this. They just thought it. They thought it. Or they said it quietly among themselves. I guess verse 24 tells us that they said it. They must have said it quietly among themselves because Jesus knew their thoughts. Now, it's not necessarily a mark of the divinity of Jesus because the Holy Spirit can give the gift of supernatural knowledge to an individual. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8 speaks of a spiritual gift known as the word of knowledge. And the Holy Spirit can, can give to you, can give to me, can give to somebody else. Supernatural knowledge, something that nobody else would know, 
And it could have been just that. You shouldn't think that this is evidence of Jesus' divinity. There are other, plenty other evidences of Jesus' divinity. This is, could just be evidence of Jesus ministering as a spirit-filled man. But he knew their thoughts, and what did he say to them? Look at it here in verse 25. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your own judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Now, Jesus here is using several different, brilliant, if I might say, arguments to refute the very heavy charge that the Pharisees made, the very heavy charge that the beautiful miracle that Jesus just did was actually a work of Satan. First of all, he says, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. That's right there in verse 25. Jesus very logically observed that it makes no sense for Satan to cast out Satan. In other words, this wasn't a tactical retreat. And I believe sometimes Satan might do that, right? Satan might make what you call a tactical retreat from a place. He's at a place, he's, he's doing a work, and he might come back from that work and stop doing that work. In other words, remain visible to not stir up too much controversy. You know, sometimes Satan's greatest work is just keeping us asleep. It's just keeping us ignorant of his presence and of his work. But Jesus isn't talking about that. You see, the Pharisees needed to explain how Satan benefited from the work that Jesus just did. You you say I'm working by the power of Satan? Okay, please, Mr. Pharisee, explain to me how this was good for Satan, that this man now has a demon delivered from him, and now he can see, and now he can speak. You see, uh, I like one thing that one commentator said here. He said, Satan may be wicked, but he's no fool. He's not going to work against himself. And whatever fault you can blame the devils with, they aren't at fight with, they aren't at strife, I should say, with one another. They, they, they don't fight against one another. The devils don't. No, they're, they're on the same team. There is unity in the ranks of demonic powers, and they don't fight against each other. So that's one argument. The next argument Jesus makes is in verse 27. He says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Jesus asked a question based on their wrong premise that he operated by Satan's power. If it's true that Jesus was operating on Satan's power, then how do their own Jewish exorcists cast them out? You see, again, the Jewish exorcists used a lot of formulas and programs and magic herbs and and, and incantations and all these different things, but, but yet... You've got to admit, even for all of that, I don't think they saw very many demons cast out, right? And you almost get the hint here that what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to say, look, I at least actually did it with this guy. All of your men, all of your, you know, exorcists, they don't actually do any work. They're ineffective, but at least I am doing it. But in verse 28, Jesus makes it clear, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God is among you. You see, Jesus made it very clear. 
I'm here operating by the Spirit of God, and the kingdom of heaven is among you because I am pushing Satan out of his way. And in verse 29, Jesus says something very interesting. He says, Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. You see, using an analogy, Jesus explained his authority to bind Satan's power. It's kind of interesting, this little illustration that Jesus used in verse 29. Consider it just for a moment. First of all, who is the strong man in verse 29? The strong man is Satan, right? And, and the strong man in verse 29 has some kind of possession. He has a house, he has goods, he has property, he has some kind of possessions. And what does Jesus do? Jesus is the man who comes, and he is, and this is key to understanding verse 29, Jesus is the one stronger than the strong man, right? He comes in and he binds the strong man. There was the strong man doing his damage to all sorts of things, stealing things, taking them inside of his house. There he is. And what does Jesus do? Jesus comes in that house, kicks down the door, so to speak, and he comes and he binds the strong man. And he says, I am stronger than the strong man. It's very interesting. Jesus was not captive under the strong man. His message was, I'm not under Satan's power. Instead, I'm proving that I'm stronger than the devil by casting him out of those people whom he has possessed. And it's very true that the fact that Jesus was so able to successfully invade Satan's territory, it was proof that Satan was bound in his presence. Now, I find a couple interesting things about this. I find it interesting, the concept that Satan has some things. Satan has things. Satan has people. And I don't think we mean here just people who are demon-possessed. But actually, wouldn't you say that anybody whose eyes are blinded to the gospel, anybody who's rejecting either passively or actively the work of the kingdom of God, that in some sense, Satan has them. In some sense, they belong to Satan. They are in his house. They are, as verse 29 says, part of his goods. And Jesus has come to say, I have come to take that away. That's what Jesus came to do. Satan, you have some things and I'm going to take them away from you. It's as if Jesus looks at every life that's delivered from Satan's domination, and he says, I'm plundering the kingdom of Satan one life at a time. You know, there's nothing in our life that has to stay under Satan's domination. Nothing. And the one who binds the strong man and will plunder his goods is our risen Lord. Jesus is the one stronger than the strong man. Now, let me use this opportunity to, to address something in the Christian life. In the Christian life, sometimes you will pray or sometimes you'll hear people pray things like this. I bind you, Satan, in the name of Jesus. Let me explain to you what I think of that kind of prayer. I think that the heart and the mind behind that prayer can be good, can be fine. But if I want to get technical, and listen, sometimes it's wrong to get too technical in prayer. Listen, prayer is pouring out of the heart before God. But, but if you want to get technical, 
I'm not comfortable with that kind of prayer. Because let me say, I, I don't look at myself as being stronger than the strong man. But Jesus is. If you wanted to get technical, if you wanted to be most correct, you would say, Satan, Jesus has bound you in his power and you are not bound in this, or you are bound in this situation. The emphasis would be on the binding, on the, on the work that Jesus has done to bind the strong man instead of your own. And sometimes Christians get an exaggerated view of their own authority in spiritual warfare. Now let me be very careful when I say that. Because listen, I believe that we do have authority in spiritual warfare, but it's only authority as we are in Christ. Jesus Christ is our authority. But I'm just saying, don't think of yourself as being the one who is stronger than the strong man. No, Jesus is the one stronger than the strong man who can bind him, and you are in him. Now, I don't say that to condemn somebody. If you prayed that this morning or last week, oh, oh no, I've sinned. I, what door to darkness have I opened? No, no not at all. Not at all. I, listen, I, I thank God that there have been so many times when he has heard my heart in prayer, right? And, and not necessarily the words that I've spoken. But yet at the same time, if we can, we want to be correctly instructed on these things, right? We want to be correctly instructed so that we know that our confidence in spiritual warfare is not upon ourselves. I don't think of myself in spiritual warfare as, I'm binding this, I'm binding that, I'm binding the other thing. Listen, my confidence is in the power of the one stronger than the strong man to bind Satan and his work. That's where my confidence is. So, now... Jesus continues on, same kind of thought here, starting at verse 30, where he says, He who is not with me is against me, and everyone who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks a word against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Now notice what Jesus, Jesus first says in verse 30. He who is not with me is against me. Jesus first removed illusions about any neutral response to him or his work. And by the way, wouldn't you say that this is where a significant part of the world is today? They would consider themselves neutral towards Jesus. Well, I, I'm not against him, but I'm not for him. I'm not one of those Jesus weirdos. I, I'm just neutral about Jesus. I'm not for him and I'm against him. Isn't it staggering to see that Jesus says that if you're not with me, you are against him. If you don't work with Jesus, then either by your active opposition or your passive disregard, you're working against Jesus. I like how he puts it there. He who does not gather with me scatters. If you're not gathering with Jesus, then you are scattering. There's only two forces at work in this world. One is gathering and one is scattering. One is gathering all things back to God the Father. The other is scattering them as far as waste them as they could be. Jesus is on the gathering side. 
And so first, Jesus eliminates any opportunity for this uh, imagined neutrality. And then he speaks in verse 31 about the blasphemy against the Spirit, which will not be forgiven. And might I say, we should take some pause right here. Because if the Bible talks about a sin not being forgiven, you and I should understand what it is. You do not want to commit the sin that cannot be forgiven, correct? This is a serious matter. And Jesus here solemnly warned the religious leaders. Let's remember, he's speaking to the Pharisees who saw the beautiful work of Jesus and called it of Satan. But that was not an isolated act. This is on the tail end of mounting opposition, strengthened rejection of Jesus. They're rejecting, they're opposing, they're rejecting, they're opposing. All the way they come up to this place where we saw earlier in the chapter where they call the beautiful work of Jesus the work of Satan. And Jesus says, take care that you don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Jesus solemnly warned the religious leaders against rejecting him because their rejection of Jesus, when his work was right in front of their eyes, it showed that they were completely rejecting the Holy Spirit's ministry. Now, what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Well, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is very plainly told to us in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 26. Jesus said that the ministry of the Holy Spirit was to testify to Him. Do you understand? Do you understand that that is the number one job of the Spirit of God? To point people to Jesus Christ. To testify of Jesus. To tell us, to explain us, to point us to Jesus. And you have to admit, it's pretty interesting, isn't it? How Jesus doesn't promote himself, he points to his Father. And the Spirit doesn't even promote himself, he points to Jesus. But that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And when that testimony of the Holy Spirit about who Jesus is and what he came to do, when that testimony of Jesus is fully and finally rejected, then one has truly blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And essentially you've looked at the Holy Spirit and you said, hey, Holy Spirit, all that stuff you say about Jesus, you're a liar, Holy Spirit. He's not who you say he is. And the religious leaders These Pharisees opposing Jesus at this time, they were close to this very grievous sin. Now, to reject Jesus from a distance or with a little bit of information, that's bad. To reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit about Jesus is fatal. And that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You think about it. Who are the people who end up eternally separated from God? In hell. Those are the people who continually reject Jesus and reject the drawing influence of the Holy Spirit upon them. No, 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 no. The Spirit of God speaks to them. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's done for you. No. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's done for you. No. No, no, and until that rejection becomes settled and firm when it is, there's no hope for that person. There's no hope for their forgiveness because their only path to forgiveness, that is Jesus Christ, has been rejected. 
the eternal consequences of this sin force us to regard it very seriously. So how can someone know whether or not they have, in fact, blasphemed the Holy Spirit? I've dealt with it many times. I've dealt with it many times, the person who comes up to me after a church service or at some other time, and they're very disturbed. Sometimes they're weeping. Sometimes they're shaking. Sometimes they just look like death has passed over their face. And they say, Pastor, I believe that I've committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And can you imagine what a desperate place that would be? To believe that you have committed a sin and there is no hope for forgiveness. You are going straight to hell and you can never be forgiven. So how can one know if they have in fact blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Listen, the fact that someone desires Jesus at all shows that they're not guilty of this sin. Do you want Jesus? Do you want to put your faith in him? Do, do you seek after him at all? Then this is evidence that you have not finally and completely rejected the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Yet, this is what you have to understand. The continued rejection of Jesus makes us more and more hardened against him. And it puts us on the path of a full and final rejection of him. This needs to be pressed home to people who need to make a decision about Jesus Christ. There are many people who operate under this mentality. The very common mentality. Look, I'm young. I'll have my fun. Right? I know that God stuff is real. I know it's, look, I know it's real. I know it's true. And I'll come to it someday. Right? But not until I've had my fun. Let me have my, as we would say, I'll sow my wild oats, right? I'll just go out and have my fun. And when I'm older and can't have so much fun anymore, then I'll come to Jesus. Listen, here's the problem. You may not want to come to Jesus then. Your continued rejection, your continued pushing away of Jesus produces a hardness of heart. And you think that you can just come to Jesus anytime you want to. And that's true. But the problem is, is as the callous upon your heart builds and builds and builds, you may not want to later. And then you're lost, lost, lost. I don't know if you've ever seen it or heard about it. But there are some people who perhaps as a joke or as a dare intentionally say words that they suppose commit the sin of blasphemy against the Spirit. There's actually a website about this. I don't know if it's still going. Some years ago it was, where they would have people on this website and they would tell you a little video would come up and they would invite you to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And they would say, see, you can show how independent you are and how foolish all this religious stuff is and how you don't want to be like one of those stupid Christians and this and that. And they would invite you to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And they say, see, now you've turned your back on all that and you can be free, whatever kind of freedom that is. And listen, I would still say, I don't care if a person would have clicked on that website saying, yes, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit a hundred times. I would still look them in the eye and say, do you want Jesus now? Do you want to be forgiven of your sins now? Do you want to put your trust in Jesus Christ now? And if they would say, yes, then I would know that they had not committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, right? And yet I imagine, I imagine that there's probably some people, maybe many people in this world, 
who live under the fog, under the black cloud of deception, convinced that they have committed this sin. And even though they want to come to Jesus Christ, they believe they never can, and so they don't. And Satan clouds their mind with a very dark deception with the intention of rushing them on to hell. Well, I think this needs to be a very firm word of hope. You come to Jesus. You come to him today. If you're fearful that you've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, forget about that. You come to Jesus, and then you'll know that you haven't. But if you turn your back on Jesus, then you're sealing your own fate. You're just getting what you want. This is what you've desired from God. You see, the true blasphemy against the Spirit is more than a formula of words. It's a settled disposition of life that rejects the testimony of the Holy Spirit regarding Jesus. Even if somebody has intentionally said such things, they can still repent and prevent a settled rejection of Jesus. So, going on now, verse 33. Either make the tree good, and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad, and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man out of the treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now Jesus here is again answering the Pharisees in their very strong opposition to Jesus. Don't you see Jesus calling out to them, Hey, Pharisees, you're in danger of this settled rejection of me that we call the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Hey, Pharisees, you're you're foolish. You're going down the wrong path. And don't excuse yourself by saying, Well, it's just words. It's not just words. You're revealing an attitude of heart. You see, the bad fruit of their words when they condemned Jesus betrayed the bad root growing in their hearts. If they got their hearts right with God, Jesus would also be right. Now again, I just want you, if it's possible, to step inside the sandals of one of these Pharisees and think about what they thought about, right? In the mind of one of these Pharisees, if you were to go up to them, you would say, well, Mr. Pharisee, do you love God? And they would say, of course I love God. It's just this Jesus guy that I can't stand. And what's wrong with that statement? Their rejection of Jesus proved they didn't love God at all. They said things about Jesus and they said things against Jesus that they would never imagine themselves saying against God in heaven. But the fact of it is, is that man in the flesh who was standing right there in front of them and speaking to them was the absolute accurate and total representation of the invisible God who's in heaven. When they spoke against Jesus, they were speaking against God in heaven and their words betrayed their hearts that they didn't love God at all. And that's why Jesus could say something very strong in verse 34. Did you see that? What did Jesus call them? A brood 
of vipers. I don't know what it says exactly in your translation, but you can't. You just have to like that King James translation. Brood of vipers. Even if people don't know what it means, it just sounds, man, that sounds bad, doesn't it? And it is bad. Do you know what a brood is? A brood is a collection of like babies or children or offspring. A brood, right? Think, think of a, a, a big mama snake with a whole brood of little tiny baby snakes. That's her brood of little vipers. You know what he's saying? He's saying, you guys are children of the snake. That's pretty strong, don't you think? You are a brood of vipers. Jesus essentially called the religious leaders here sons of Satan. You are a generation associated with Satan, not with God. And it's this evil nature that made them speak evil of Jesus. That's why he says, how can you, being evil, speak good things? Instead, verse 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Let's face it, our words reveal our heart. How many times have you found that out or exposed that to your own embarrassment, right? Where you said something that you shouldn't have said, but it was really exactly how you felt? But that's why you shouldn't have said it. You should have been more diplomatic to say that thing that was exactly how you felt, right? It happens that way, doesn't it? Eventually, we're going to reveal our heart by our words. And if there's good treasure in our heart, or if there was in the heart of these religious leaders who were opposing Jesus, it would show itself in good things. But there was not something good there. And that's why Jesus says in verse 37, by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. By this, Jesus answered the anticipated objection that he's making too much of mere words. Instead, Jesus says, because your words reflect your heart, you can rightly be judged by your words. You know, Paul, the apostle, also wrote about the importance of our words. Remember what he said in Romans chapter 10, verse 9? He said that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess with your mouth. You need to make a vocal confession of who you think Jesus is. Very important, the place of these words. By words, you'll be either accepted or condemned before God. Now, in the midst of this conflict, right? Here's the Pharisees. You're doing this by the power of Satan. And Jesus answering back, right? Jesus isn't, oh, please like me. No, he's like, you brood of snakes. You know, he's going back and forth, back and forth. Then we come to verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now again, the way many people think about signs and miracles, they would say, well, this is reasonable. Didn't Jesus do signs and miracles as a way to authenticate his ministry? Why not, Jesus? Jesus, what does it hurt you right now to uh, flick of the wrist and you create a bird and it flies away? Or um, you clap your hands and lightning goes in the sky or something like that. Jesus, do it and then they'll believe. What I want you to understand here is that their desire to see a sign really expressed 
another way that they hoped to reject him. Because if Jesus did provide a sign right at that moment, they would find some way to speak against it, just proving to themselves that Jesus was who they already thought he was. They already thought that Jesus was an ambassador of Satan. And they're just looking for something to make an excuse about. By the way, doesn't this remind us that not every seeker is sincere. Not everybody who says they're seeking after God is sincere about it. And Jesus doesn't give them much, uh, much room here, these insincere seekers. Uh, let's start at verse 38 again. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus first condemned their seeking after a sign. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after signs. Might we remind ourselves that this is in the context of Jesus performing sign after sign after sign, right? In other words, it's not like Jesus hadn't done anything. But no, Jesus had given them sign after sign. And what did they do with the signs that they saw right in front of their eyes that Jesus performed? They attributed them to the devil. Now Jesus says, listen, you guys are just an evil and adulterous generation. It's very easy to overestimate the power of miraculous signs to change the heart of doubters and skeptics. Sometimes we think that way, right? Oh, Lord, if you just did a miracle now, then they would believe. Oh, Lord, Lord if you just did a big dramatic miracle, oh, man, that would change their hearts, Lord. Lord, if you just gave me a miracle, I would never doubt you again. Oh, yeah? Listen, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they had saw sign after sign done right before their eyes. And what was their reaction? Number one, uh, what you've shown us so far is of the devil. Number two, why don't you do another one? Jesus is going to have none of this. But secondly, I just would remind you over and over again in the Bible where these amazing signs are done, people often don't believe. My favorite example of this, I can't pass this one up, my favorite example of this is the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, right? The nation of Israel, they came out of Egypt with all the plagues behind them. If you saw the plagues of Egypt and you were spared from them, would you believe? They went through the Red Sea. Would that make you believe? They ate manna. They had water miraculously provided for them. They made their way to Mount Sinai where they saw thunder and lightning and clouds, all emissaries of the presence of God. And they heard, don't miss this, they heard the voice of God audibly from heaven speak to the whole nation. I don't know about you, but I'd never sin again, right? This is all these people had. And what were they doing? Just a few days later, they were all dancing around a golden calf, saying, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. Listen, it's not seeing miracles that changes the life. It's the work of God by faith in our life. That's what it is. And so listen, sometimes God works through miracles. 
but it's very easy to overestimate the persuasive power of miracles. Certainly didn't persuade these Pharisees, did it? So Jesus says, I love this. He says, listen, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Verse 39, I'll give you the sign of the prophet Jonah. Think of the prophet Jonah? What's that? The getting eaten by a whale sign or a great big fish? What's that? And Jesus explains, no, in verse 40, he says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Now, please notice this. Jonah was an amazing thing. Have you ever thought of the story of Jonah in this way? Jonah gave his life to appease the wrath of God. The wrath of God was in the storm. The wrath of God was going to destroy the ship and all the sailors upon it. And what did Jonah say? He said, no, give me over to the wrath of God. Put it on me and you will be saved. So what did they do? They threw Jonah into the wrath of God, into the ocean, and instantly the storm stopped. Jonah took upon himself the wrath of God, but death did not hold him. After three days and three nights of imprisonment, he was alive and free. Isn't that a glorious picture of Jesus in a very unexpected place in the book of Jonah? Now, I need to make a comment here. Verse 40 says, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. And Jesus relates this to his own time in the tomb, right? Jesus was three days and three nights in the tomb. Now, there are some people who challenge the traditional chronology of the death and resurrection of Jesus based on this verse. Let me explain to you what I mean. The traditional chronology is that Jesus died on what day of the week? Jesus died on Friday, right? Was put in the tomb on Friday evening. Was in the tomb Friday evening, Saturday, and then Sunday morning Jesus was risen from the dead. Now, this is what people say. They say that chronology is impossible because that does not give you three days and three nights, right? Because you have a Friday night, you have a Saturday morning, or we'll put mornings over here. You have a Friday night, you have a Saturday morning or day, right? Then you have a Saturday night, right? And then you have a Sunday morning, and they go, no, 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 that's not three days and three nights. That's two days and two nights. They say, so it's impossible. Therefore, people say, Jesus must have been crucified on Thursday instead of Friday. And there are some people who are very insistent about this and have done a lot of chronological work. Now, let me say this. They might be right, reconstructing the precise chronology of these biblical events is notoriously complicated and difficult. It might be true that Jesus was crucified on Thursday instead of Friday, but nobody should think for a moment that it must be so in order to satisfy verse 40 of Matthew chapter 12. Because let me explain something to you. What that approach does not take into account is the fact that this was an ancient figure of speech. It's very well documented. Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah, he wrote about the year 100 AD. He cited in Adam Clark and in some other sources. This is what he explained according to this way of speaking. He says, quote, A day and a night make a whole day, and a portion of a whole day is reckoned as a whole day. In other words, any piece of Friday equals a day and night Friday. 
any piece of Saturday, any piece of Sunday. This was a figure of speech that they used in that day to refer to any portion of Friday, any portion of Saturday, any portion of Sunday. Now, this is just what I'm saying, is that verse 40 of Matthew chapter 12 does not demand that Jesus was in the tomb for a full 72 hours. It does not. Now, I'm not saying that that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't actually cru- was crucified on Thursday. Maybe it was. All right, I'm not going to get into the whole chronology. I just think that it's a mistaken idea that it must be so to satisfy this particular word. But let's face it, if Jesus would have risen from the dead on the first day, or on the fifth day, we could say Jesus was a liar and a false prophet. But he said that he would rise from the dead on the third day. And he did. Because Jesus never gets it wrong. But yet, don't miss the central point here. Don't get so caught up on three days and three nights that you miss the central point. Do you see what the central point is? The Pharisees came to Jesus and they, show us a sign. And you know what Jesus said? He said, you want a sign? I'm your sign. I'm your sign. You're asking for a sign? I am a go- I am God's sign. You failed to recognize me. The Ninevites recognized God's warning and Jonah... And then as he's going to say in the next verse, that the queen of Sheba recognized God's wisdom in Solomon, but you are missing God's sign in me. Let's look at it, verses 41 and 42. He says, The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment of this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Now again, I want you to notice something here. Jesus is pushing back against this opposition. Here are the religious leaders pushing against Jesus, opposing him, fighting against him, speaking against him. And what does Jesus say? Does he says, oh, I wish you'd like me. You know, come on guys, can't we be friends? Let's forget, let's just focus on our common ground. Did you say anything like that? No. When they pushed against him, Jesus pushed back. Now, I'm not saying that's up for us to do in our situations. I will say it was important for Jesus to do, for two reasons. First of all, let's face it, life or death relies on a person's view of who Jesus Christ is, eternally speaking. So this is no minor point that Jesus is debating. But secondly, please notice this. Jesus is having these disputes, these debates with the religious leaders publicly. If Jesus did not oppose their false words about him, it would leave the wrong impression with the multitudes. Jesus may know very well, you Pharisees are never going to believe what I say. You're never going to receive it. But I need to say it nonetheless because other people are listening. Therefore, Jesus says to them, he pushes back strong here in verses 41 and 42. He says, listen, the men of Nineveh are going to rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Simply put, you guys have received a greater light than Jonah ever brought to Nineveh. You've received a greater light than Solomon ever brought to the Queen of Sheba. The Queen of Sheba repented. The, The people of Nineveh repented. And they had a much smaller, dimmer light burning in their midst. Therefore, you Pharisees, your rejection of this greater light is inexcusable. 
Think about it. You can think in many ways that the ministry of Jesus was greater than the ministry of Jonah. I mean, who was greater, Jesus or Jonah? Jonah's weird, right? Have you ever read that book? He's a greater man. He's a greater person than Jonah. He had a greater ministry. What did Jonah do? Well, Jonah preached for 40 days in Nineveh, and that's it. Jesus preached for three years. Jonah wrought no miracles. Did did Jonah do a single miracle? A single sign? No, Jesus did repeated miracles, repeated signs. Yet for all this greater testimony, they rejected him with much less evidence. And by the way, the Ninevites really responded to Jonah's message. I love that little book. One of my favorite little passages, and it talks about the repentance of the Ninevites. And you know, a custom to demonstrate repentance in that, uh, that day was to clothe yourself with sackcloth, right? Sackcloth was a rough fabric, and it was a way of saying, listen, I'm going to make myself miserable for the sake of reflecting my misery before God, right? So I'm not going to wear my nice, soft clothes. I'm going to put on rough, uncomfortable clothes. And that's what people would do often when they were demonstrating their repentance. Well, the the repentance of the Ninevites was so complete that it says that they clothed their cows, their livestock in sackcloth. That's repentance. When you're leading your cows into repentance, that's repentance. Nineveh really repented. These Pharisees did not. And Jesus says something very radical. Did you notice it in verse 42? One greater than Solomon is here. You gotta remember this. I get I, I just I just wish sometimes we could wipe our minds, mine included, wipe it completely clean and read the Bible brand new again. Because when you read the Bible brand new again, you realize how audacious it is for Jesus to say, one greater than Solomon is here. Solomon was regarded as one of the greatest kings that Israel ever had. He built the temple. He had the glory. He had the wisdom. He had the riches, the wisdom, and all this. Now listen, I'm not talking about the bad part of Solomon, his foolishness later on, but in the mind of the common Israelite, Solomon was great. And Jesus says, yeah, one greater than Solomon's here. Could you imagine? Could you imagine a political leader coming on the scene today and saying, yeah, you know that George Washington guy? One greater than George Washington is here. One greater than Abraham Lincoln is here. You know, one greater than, pick whatever great political leader you want to pick. People would be astounded. What are you talking about? Who do you think you are? Well, Jesus knew who he was. He was the Son of God. To stand in front of these religious leaders and claim to be greater than Israel's richest and wisest king, that was audacious. Yet the seeming audaciousness of Jesus was well justified. So, Jesus now, starting at verse 43, he's going to talk about the dangerous consequences of their rejection of him. Notice it here. He says, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest, and finds none. Then he says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. And then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. So shall it be with this wicked generation. Now I have a feeling, and all I can say is it's a feeling. Look, I, I have no way of demonstrating this whatsoever. But as I said to you many times before, when I read the Bible, it's like a movie running in my head. And in the movie that's in my head, when Jesus says this, he's looking square 
in the eyes of the Pharisees, of the religious leaders who are rejecting him. And this is what he's saying here. He's saying, you accuse me of being in league with Satan. Let me tell you, you guys are the ones in danger of the satanic. You guys are the ones, you know, sleeping on the devil's doorstep. Because let me tell you something about the work of demons. In verse 43, Jesus tells us that when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. And he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes back, he brings more with him. Now, we need to understand that the main point of Jesus here was not to explain to us principles of demon possession. That's not his main point. His main point was to explain the seriousness of rejecting him the way that these Pharisees were rejecting him. But nevertheless, it tells us some interesting things about demon possession. The bottom line is this. This rejection and opposition of Jesus would leave them much worse off than ever before. This wicked generation that Jesus mentions there in verse 45, this wicked generation exemplified by the religious leaders who were rejecting Jesus, they would find their last state worse than the first. Think about it. Why did they reject Jesus? One big reason is that he wasn't messianic enough. He wasn't enough of a Messiah for them, speaking in these political and military terms. Yet in their sense of being, or their desire for a political and military Messiah, their thirst for that kind of Messiah would lead them to ruin by 70 AD. And they were much worse off for rejecting Jesus. But again, The use of this illustration shows us some interesting principles of demon possession. It shows us, number one, Jesus regarded demon possession as a real phenomenon, right? Secondly, it shows us that demons, or at least apparently some of them, desire a human host and they looked for a place among the empty, seeking or seeing it as an invitation. I have to say it's a very... I don't know, it's a very, I don't know if frightening is the right word to use, but look at it in verse 44. The demon says, I will return to my house. My house? How dare a demon call a human vessel my house? He has no claim to it. He didn't build it. He didn't buy it. He lives in it purely as a squatter, someone who has no rights to it. But yet if he comes, and as it says in verse 44, if he finds it empty, that is, without the indwelling spirit of Jesus Christ, then he's in trouble. You see, if it's empty, now I want you to notice this is very interesting, exactly what it says here in verse 44. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Now, many of us would look at, wasn't that nice? The house is all nice. It's all clean, it's swept, it's put in order. That's just how we want it, right? It's nice, clean, it's all made nice. And Jesus is saying, no, listen. The demon doesn't care if it's nice and swept and clean. He doesn't care if it's in order. As long as it is empty, he's more than happy to go there. 
And this impresses upon us the great need to be filled with Jesus. If we are filled with Jesus, if we are born again by the Spirit of God, then we cannot be empty and we cannot therefore be inhabited by a demon. And what would be the result of that? Verse 45, the last state of that man is worse than the first. This presses the urgency of being filled with the Spirit of Jesus Christ. You know, there is something worse than being simply demon-possessed. Jesus here is indicating for us that there are degrees of demon possession. And one can be more demon-possessed than another. The answer to all this misery is to be filled with the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but at the end of verse 45, I'm, I'm kind of depressed, right? Jesus opposing the the religious leaders you think these religious leaders who should have been accepting him they're rejecting him the crowds are are, well they're undecided but they're like this could be the guy this could be the son of david right this could be the messiah but but the, the the reaction from the the religious leaders from the pharisees is so strong it's so violent you go man this just isn't right and Jesus has to answer back strongly and it's well you're demon possessed no you're demon possessed and they go back and forth and back and forth And then we come to the end. I I like how the chapter ends. It ends on a very good note. A very hopeful note for us. Verse 46. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and he said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, by the way, can I just pause right there? Jesus knew who his mother was and who his brothers were, right? He's saying this as an illustration, right? And what's the illustration? The next point he wants to make. And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and mother. Now, considering the general context of the last several chapters of Matthew, this rising opposition to Jesus, right? Considering that, don't you think that maybe his family has come to Jesus to say, Jesus, maybe you need to back off a little bit, right? Don't be so confrontational. This business of yelling at the Pharisees, and I mean yelling in a good way, not in a bad way, But this business of crying out against the Pharisees and telling them that they're the demon-possessed ones, maybe that's not going to, you know, last you too good in your ministry. Now, in the midst of that, Jesus says, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? We would have expected that these ones who had a blood relationship to Jesus, his mother, his brothers, and later on in verse 50 he mentions sisters, These ones who had a blood relationship with Jesus, we would have thought that they would have special privilege, but Jesus says no. No. Not Mary, the mother of Jesus. She has no special place with Jesus, not then or now. She's a wonderful example of someone who was privileged by God, and she stood by Jesus, but she is not on a higher level than anyone who, as Jesus said, does the will of my Father in heaven. And then Jesus says, you're my brothers too. Wow. And you got to say that this, um, this challenges a couple very big Roman Catholic doctrines. 
One is the excessive veneration of Mary. The idea that Mary should be exalted above any human being. It just doesn't doesn't hold. Listen, if you are in Christ, anyone who does the will of Jesus' Father in heaven, you are just as dear to him as his own mother. That's astounding, isn't it? And it really turns a lot of Roman Catholic theology and practice on its head. And so much of Roman Catholic thinking on this line is sort of this idea of, well, you know, pray to Mary. You know, she has special favor with Jesus. And, you know, a son can never refuse a request from his mother. So, you know, just pray to Mary and you'll get far with Jesus if you just pray to Mary. No, no, no. You have just as much access to Jesus as Mary ever had. Those who do the will of the Father in heaven. Then the brothers. Doesn't that destroy another Roman Catholic doctrine? The idea of what is called the perpetual virginity of Mary. The idea that after Mary gave birth to Jesus, that she never had sexual relations, never bore children after that. Well, it's just not true. Now, I I will tell you that Roman Catholics like to take this verse and say that brothers can mean cousins. And it's true that it can mean, but it's a very far-fetched and very distant, very unlikely idea. By far, far and away, the most natural reading is that brothers means brothers. Now, technically, if you want to say, these would be half-brothers, would they not be? They would be brothers because even though they shared the same mother with Mary, they did not share the same father, biologically speaking. But don't you love how the chapter ends in verse 50? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. These beloved ones who do the will of God stand in a great contrast to the evil and adulterous generation who are represented by the Pharisees. So it's like Jesus says, listen, I know we have the opposition of the Pharisees, of the religious leaders, but don't despair. I still have my family. And by my family, I don't mean my biological family. I mean a family that's even more important to me, my spiritual family, my brothers and sisters and mothers, those who belong to me because we do the will of our Father in heaven. We can see this as a very gracious invitation even to the religious leaders who were rejecting him, even to the Pharisees, Jesus is saying to them, you can be as close to me as a blood relative. You can be that close to me. Come, be that close to me. You can come. Just do the will of my Father in heaven and you can be part of the family. It's a very gracious invitation that Jesus closed this little dialogue with the Pharisees with. Now, Next time we're together, we're going to get into Matthew chapter 13, which is a very dramatic chapter filled with parables about the kingdom. And in it, Jesus is going to talk a lot about acceptance and rejection of him and his word and his work through these parables. But notice how this chapter closes on a very gracious invitation. Nobody should think for a moment that Jesus hated the Pharisees. I talked about the movie that runs in my head 
On the one part of that movie, I, I think of Jesus speaking very sternly, very strongly to the Pharisees, trying to shake them out of their sinful deception. But on the other hand, speaking to them very tenderly, inviting them to come and be part of the family. And that's the gracious invitation he makes to us all. Father, that's our prayer tonight. That as the Holy Spirit speaks to our heart and invites us to be part of the family, that we would both do it and enjoy it. That we would really know the depths of the goodness of what it means to be part of your family. Help us with it, Lord. Help us to live with the awareness that we are as close to Jesus as a blood brother, as a blood sister, as the mother who bore him. Make us, Lord, unsatisfied with a superficial or distant relationship from him. Thank you, Jesus, for your gracious invitation unto us and unto all. We receive it with gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.